Well, good morning again. If you need to take a stretch break, now would be the time. Stan, you've been sitting a little bit more than usual this morning after our long breakfast and then some special music. Thanks so much, Bruce. That was just great. Well, as you know, we've been walking through the book of Judges, and last week we covered Othniel and Ehud. Uh, And this week we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5. We're going to try to cover both chapters today because they work together in a fashion that is supplemental. They both tell uh, the same story. Uh, One is going to be more of a history, and the other one's going to be a poem. Or as I like to say, it's a story in chapter 4, and then you have the song in chapter 5. So a story and a song. If you're new to the Bible or you don't own a Bible, I encourage you to take one of our pew Bibles and keep it as your own. It's our gift to you. And you can find the book of Judges on page 170. You'll also notice large numbers, and those will be the chapter numbers, and then small numbers, which will be the verse numbers. And that should help you to follow along with us this morning. And so, because we're covering two chapters, we have a good deal of ground to cover. But before we do all that, let me pray, and then uh, we can move into our time together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together to bring you glory, to sing of your victory over death and of your lordship over our lives. We thank you that you've called us according to your purpose and that you've determined the times and places that we should live and that you determined that we would be in this room before the beginning of time, hearing your word preached. Father, we pray that it would be transforming of us, that our hearts would be changed by it and that we wouldn't leave this room the same that we would learn more about you so that we might walk more closely with you. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Help us to meet with you this morning and to learn more about your glory, your wonderful plan, your sovereignty, your goodness, and your grace. Thank you for the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be talking about a story and a song. And so what I hope to do this morning is to kind of walk through the story in chapter 4 and then supplement it with chapter 5 together at the front end and then point out a few characters and make application from there. And so we're going to talk about the story on the front end and then we're going to talk about some of the characters. And the characters that we are going to talk about in order are Deborah, Barak, Jael, and then God himself. So... Book of Judges, chapter 4, starting with verse 1. And I need to turn there myself, as it turns out. Chapter 4, starting with verse 1. This is the historical account, or the story. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. If you've been with us, this should come as no surprise to you. You recognize the cycle. Israel sins. The Lord disciplines them. They cry out to the Lord. He raises up a deliverer. They follow him for a little while after the land has rest. And then they sin again. And the cycle repeats itself. Chapter 5, verse 3. Verses 1 through 3. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abonaim, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, 
that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord. I will sing, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. So we see that the Lord will free them from the oppression. He will give victory for his people sing. But how is it that the Lord will bring this victory? How will he deliver his people from cruelty? Well, through the singers of the song, Deborah and Barak, which we read in chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinayim, and Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabar, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet with you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give them into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulon and to Nephtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went with them. Deborah and Barak sing of this in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering place. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake. Break out in song. Arise, Barak, and lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Awakened by God, Deborah and Barak will serve God faithfully so that all will tell of his victory. Those who ride on white donkeys and those who walk by the way, that is the rich and the poor, every man will know God's great triumph. The story and the song are both building towards the battlefield. But before we get there in chapter 4, verse 11, right on the cusp of battle, we read, Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab the father-in-law of Moses, then had pitched his tent as far as the oak of Zenaniah, which is near Kadesh. This kind of comes out of left field in chapter 4. You're not quite ready for it, and you don't quite understand it until you read further. So just keep it in the back of your mind. And we get to verse 12 in chapter 4. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinayim, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him up from Harosheth Haggaim to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand, does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not one man was left. Thus our heroes sing in verse 13 of chapter 5. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down against for, for me against the mighty. Indeed, the people marched down against the enemy, and they have complete victory. Yet Sisera, the general, flees on foot. 
which takes us to verse 17 of chapter 4. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her and went into her tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened his skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is he here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lies Sisera, dead, with a tent peg in his temple. So Deborah sings in chapter 5, verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent, she sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through all the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answered. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they found and divided the spoil? A womb or two wombs for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroiled, embroidered for the neck of the spoil. The song gives us a little bit more information about the wickedness of Sisera before he's killed. Deborah pictures Sisera's mother and her friends waiting for him, wondering when will he return from battle. And as they discuss how the campaign should go, we learn that Sisera, uh, when he has victory, steals, rapes, and enslaves women. Indeed, he's a very wicked man. And his mother and her friends think that this accounts for their return, that they're simply reaping uh, the spoils of victory. But the reader knows, as Deborah sings in song, that Sisera is dead. As Tim Keller points out, the whole judge's cycle is framed around the actions of women. Deborah leads Israel under Sisera's oppression. And his oppression is seen most horribly in how he treats Israel's women. And Jael, another woman, is the means by which his reign of rape and terror is ended. Sisera's death brings us to the final scene in the story in chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So too, our song in chapter 5 ends. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. The victory is the Lord's. And he has again rescued his idolatrous people from the hands of the oppressor. Whew, that's a story 
and a song all together. Probably a little bit hard to follow as you flip the pages back and forth in your Bible. Barak and Deborah sing of the victory of the Lord. And chapter 4 tells us how God used an unlikely hero again, an unlikely uh, person to destroy the enemy, the general, with a household item at that time, a tent peg in his temple. Reminds us of Ehud last week, right? Tricked the enemy and assassinated him by driving his sword that was hidden from his sight through his belly. This week, our uh, hero kills him with a tent peg through the temple. But let us look at our cast of characters. See what they have to teach us. First, Deborah. We first meet Deborah in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, wherein she's described to us as one who judges or governs. See, she's not like the other judges, as we've talked about, as great military leaders, though she does summon Barak to lead the military. She's actually adjudicating or deciding court cases. People are coming to her, and they're looking for wisdom from her. Secondly, we see that she is a prophetess. And as a prophetess, she is a spokesperson for God to the people. It should be remembered that in later lists of deliverers, Barak's name is featured, while Deborah's name never appears. Presumably because this was not her primary role. She communicates with God and communicates his response to the people's cry, but she is not the answer. Deborah is first and foremost a prophetess declaring the word of God. Now, in her role as prophetess, the sons of Israel, that is Israel as a whole, they go to her to figure out what God has to say in response to their cries. She then reveals that God will indeed deliver the people, and she summons Barak. She prophesies further and tells Barak that though he will go headlong into the teeth of battle against a mighty enemy, he will gain no glory, even though he will be victorious. But the glory will go to a woman. She goes into battle with Barak and alerts him to the troops as to the moment when God will go before them and rout the enemy. Some things I notice about Deborah. She doesn't seek power. She's content to function in the role that God has assigned to her. She knows God is good and she trusts him. She submits to his will and his plan for her life. She's not concerned with her own agenda or becoming the great deliverer. She's content to yield that role to Barak and function as God's prophetess. She knows her part, and she encourages Barak to play his. To play his. Up, she tells him in verse 14, God has given Sisera into your hand. This makes me think of how sometimes I'm tempted to be jealous of the roles of others and their places and situations in life. Tempted to uh, rail against where God has put me. Why don't I have that person's ability? Why can't I sing like such and such? Why don't I have this job? Why don't I get to live in this place? Do you sometimes get jealous of the assignment that God has given to others and want it for yourself? Do you sometimes think about how you can make this or that happen rather than trusting and submitting to God? In Christ, we need not find our identity or our meaning in our career, or how much influence or power we have over others, or in how much we know or how much we can do. But we can rest content knowing that our identity is in Jesus Christ. And being wholly his, we are holy as he makes us. Holy acceptable and holy valuable in the sight of God. 
Therefore, we do not need to try and prove ourselves worthy to ourselves or to anybody else through our busyness or career or knowledge or anything else. Have you learned to be content with who God has made you and the gifts and roles that he has assigned to you and entrusted to you? Deborah is a great example of a wise leader, and she leads by serving and submitting to God. She does not strive after her own glory, but God's glory. And so she submits herself to his plan. The career of Deborah, however, raises many questions as it relates to the role of women in ministry, which I think is uh, appropriate in an ironic sort of way that we would discuss women's roles on Men's Sunday. That's fun. Uh, And so uh, we're going to point out a few of those things. We're not going to be able to to treat it exhaustively because it's a a very large subject. And so uh, it's important that I try and speak clearly and concisely on this matter. Uh, So bear with me as I'm going to be largely dependent upon secondary sources, uh, Tim Keller and uh, Mark Dever primarily. So as we take a look at women in ministry, it's important to remember that uh, we need to read texts of the Bible within their context, that we need to consult the whole of Scripture and allow the clear parts of the Bible to inform the less clear parts. It's also important to remember that we ought to be cautious of reading narrative, a record of what happened, over prescriptively, that is, as a record of what should happen. Judges 4 and 5 are written simply to tell us what happened, not what should happen and far less what ought happen today. We see that Deborah is clearly called by God as a prophetess and that she leads God's people. We also see that Deborah, alone among the judges, does not fight. She is not a warrior. She does not lead the army, but instead calls on Barak to complement her own abilities. Deborah certainly functions as a civil leader, and if we take this as I do, We can note from Deborah's career that there is no reason why women should not lead in civil roles, in business and in politics and in other things. But this does not mean that we can carry that over into the life of the church. This is where putting the text in the context of the whole of Scripture is extraordinarily helpful. In the Old Testament, Israel, there we see Israel there were three great offices. Prophet, priest, and king, or queen, or leader, or judge, whatever you want to call it. Some women, such as Deborah, were prophets, and some were judges or queens. That's Deborah again. But none were priests. Numbers 3.10 and Leviticus 21 show that all priests were men descended from Aaron. The Old Testament tells us that women are equal in value, in dignity, and in ability, created as they are in God's image and given dominion over his creation. It also shows us that women were free to use their gifts in any role but that of priest. God shows his Old Testament people that men and women are equal, but not equivalent. That is equal, but not the same. This is the same pattern we discover in the New Testament. Uh, Women serve in a great many ways and as deacons, but never as elders. As in the Old Testament, God reserves one role for men, which is the role of elder. Timothy Keller writes pointedly on this. He says, This is why Paul, having assumed that women will speak in public in the church meetings, both prophesying and praying, then tells women to keep silent in the church later in the same book of Corinthians. It cannot mean a literal verbal wordlessness throughout the meeting. The context isn't public ministry in general, but the evaluation of the doctrine of a speaker. When someone speaks, there must be others who weigh carefully what is said to declare it true or false. 
In other words, to have a disciplinary authority. This is the role of the elders. And so it is at this point that women should remain silent because the role is, that is the role of elder, is reserved for men. This is the same idea Paul writes of when in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that women should not teach or have authority. He has in mind teaching with authority or teaching with disciplinary power. In other words, they should not function in the role of elder. This squares with other New Testament evidence that women did indeed teach, but they just didn't do so with disciplinary or authoritative power. In sum, women can exercise their gifts, talents, and abilities in every role except the role of elder. God forbids one kind of role in the church to women as he did to Israel. So we must not jump to forbidding all teaching and tasks to women. And we shouldn't assert all sorts of specific tasks are off limits. Women are free to pursue careers, to lead, to teach, to serve, free to do everything that a man who is not an elder can do. Equally, God does forbid one role to women in the church. This is not to say that women are any less valuable. They just have a different part to play in the symphony of God's people. This is why it is imperative to distinguish between the two roles, elder and deacon, in our churches. The word deacon simply means to serve, and it's used throughout the, Old, or the New Testament in a variety of places. For instance, in John 12, 26, Jesus says this, Whoever deacons me must follow me, and where I am, my deacon will also be. My father will honor the one who deacons me. And that is probably a familiar verse that sounds a little bit odd because I've inserted the word deacon, which is the word it's translated servant, and read it deacon instead of servant. It is the Greek word for serve. So I'll read it to you again as you're probably more familiar as hearing it. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. There are a great many examples, but for the sake of time, we're going to press forward. All Christians are called to be deacons or servants in one sense. But the role of deacon it also takes a form of a specific office in the church. It is this office that both men and women serve. The responsibilities of deacons are many. Support of the elders, promoting unity in the body, caring for the needy, encouraging the saints, and myriad of other things. The office of elder, the office only available to men, is a different kind of deaconing. It's a different kind of service. It is a service of the word, what we spoke of earlier as authoritative teaching with disciplinary power. So it is important to distinguish between the roles of elders and of deacons so that the two offices do not become confused with one another and one doesn't get forgotten. If we maintain the distinction, the two offices work together in sweet concert. But if we forget the distinctions, uh, the result can be Rebellion against God's design for his church. Mark Dever writes, Churches should neglect neither the preaching of the word nor the practical care for members that helps to foster unity and that fills out our duties to love one another. Both of these aspects of church life and ministry are important in order to assure that we have both kinds of deaconing going on in our churches. We should distinguish the ministries of deacons from those of elders. The failure to distinguish the offices is why some churches are discouraged from recognizing women as deacons. It is our clarity about the distinction of roles uh, between elders and deacons that allows us to embrace both. The fact that elders are males enables us to encourage freely the service of our women and our sisters as deacons or deaconesses recognized by the church. 
In our small church, we currently don't have this structure in place for a variety of reasons, but to help you think about what I'm talking about a little bit, the office of elder, elder is just another word for pastor. And so this church has currently one elder or pastor, and hey, it's me, all right? You're looking at him right now. And so when you think about the role of elder or pastor, that's my role. That's my form of deaconing or of service. Now we think about the role of deacons in another sense would be people that are set aside by the church to specific service tasks. Obviously, we're all going to serve one another in love. But there's a different group of people that will be set with this task primarily of service. They're going to be who we call on right at the get-go when we need something done. All right, hey, uh, we're doing a breakfast. You're in charge of this or that. So deacons promote unity and they support the ministry of the elders by serving as peacemakers, coordinating church activities, and caring for the needy. This looks like visiting our brothers and sisters that are prevented from joining together with us by health issues. When was the last time that you visited someone? Let me encourage you to do that. We have many that are um, sick or just too elderly to get out, and they value your visiting. The Bible calls us to care for the weak and the needy and the poor, and they are them. There's plenty of them. Give up half an hour, an hour of your time. It will bless them tremendously. And here's the secret. It will bless you tremendously. Visit with our other church members that can't be here and be blessed as you are blessed. They need community just like you do. Deaconing looks like helping individuals. It looks like handling the sound system. It looks like cutting the grass and keeping records. It looks like taking visitors to lunch. It looks like service. All members of the church are to deacon or serve one another. But churches appoint deacons specifically, primarily, to help the elder pastor whose main obligations lie in prayer and the teaching of the word. As Dever says, deacons are not a separate power block in the church. They're not a second house of legislature, if you will, through which bills need to be passed. They are servants who serve the church as a whole by helping with the responsibilities that the main teachers, elders, pastors cannot perform. Deacons support the teachers of the word in their ministry. They're fundamentally encouragers and supporters of the ministry. Therefore, it is most supportive people in the church who should serve the church in the office of deacon. Like I said, there's a lot more to be said on this topic, but as we mentioned earlier, we cannot treat it exhaustively. But I hope that the need to distinguish between the roles has been made clear to you this morning. I've been a bit repetitious on purpose uh, because they say repetition is the mother of learning. And uh, that's kind of what I wanted you to take away from this time is the distinction between elder and deacon and that we are free to encourage our sisters to serve in the office of deacon to serve the church in that way. And it's the office of elder that remains uh, exclusive to um, men. And I'll give Keller the, the last word on this topic before we move on to our next character. He says this, The question of women's roles is an ongoing issue. We must treat it as important, but not a cause for abrasive condemnations of those who disagree with us. In other words, we ought to be able to remember our unity in the gospel our unity in Christ, and engage in edifying discussions responsibly with an attitude of humility and of love. All right, that was fun. We're going to move along to Barak now. 
we come to the second character in our list, Barak. His name means lightning, which I think is kind of cool. It's kind of a cool name to be named lightning. And we meet him in verse 6 of chapter 4. And Deborah prophesies to him that God wants him to gather his men and take them against Sisera and his 900 chariots. It's at this point that Barak asks Deborah to go with him. And this, this request has traditionally been interpreted in two ways. First, many think that this text teaches that Barak is asking Deborah to go with him and is showing a timid lack of faith on his part. Deborah prophesies that the glory of God or the glory of victory will not be his but a woman's as a result of his lack of faith. The second view says that verse 9 is to be read not as a rebuke of Barak, but simply as prophecy, as a statement of fact. Deborah's telling him that even though he will battle a mighty foe and he will be victorious, that the glory will not be his. It will go to another, a woman. Deborah's statement then is one of fact and not a verdict on Barak's faith. Now, these two positions, you're free to take whichever you like. I think the weight of Scripture ought to persuade us, however, to the second view. Because Barak is elsewhere listed as an example of faith in Hebrews 11.32, for example. His plea to take Deborah with him is not a disobedience or a lack of faith, but is a recognition of Deborah's status as a prophet. She represents God's presence with his people. Block writes this, The request to be accompanied by the prophet is a plea for the presence of God. Barak refuses to go without the presence of God. What an excellent example for us. What are you prone to try and do apart from Jesus? Where in your life are you living without the presence of God? In what ways are you relying on yourself? What are you willing to do without the presence of God? Next, Barak is told that God is going to give Sisera and the glory of victory to a woman. This will serve as a sign of, to Barak that God has called him and that God has been with him. When he sees Sisera fall into the hands of a woman, he will know that God has orchestrated the victory and that God alone is due the glory. Barak is obedient and he fights the battle despite the fact that he will not gain any glory for himself. I think this is a great example for us. What do you do differently in your life because you have faith, even though you don't get honor for doing it? Where are you serving where there are no accolades, where there are no applause? Are you willing to clean somebody's toilet? Are you willing to take the hard jobs? Are you willing to be obedient without getting credit or glory? Barak was, and he fought a mighty foe. Thirdly, we meet Jael, and her name means mountain goat. That one's for free. I just think it's funny that her name means mountain goat. And we learn that she is a distant relative of Israel. And her house is at peace with King Jabin and his general Sisera. And then we're surprised to find out that she's a lot like Ehud, a trickster and an assassin. So we see Sisera fleeing on foot to Jael, and we kind of expect that he's come to this safe haven. But then Jael fulfills God's purpose for her. And she kills the enemy of God with what, it, what would have been a normal household object. Sisera's death is humiliating because not only is he killed by a common object, but it comes at the hands of a woman rather than in battle. Weakness triumphs over strength in the economy of God. Jael shows us that anyone can be a hero and that God will use whomever he wills to accomplish his good and perfect will. He loves us. He, he loves to use the unexpected. How will God use you 
What unexpected way might God want to use you to bring him glory? Lastly, and most importantly, we come to the primary character of the book of Judges and of our text today, God. We learn that there is blessing to be found in fighting for God. We learn that he pours out his wrath on his enemy when he wishes. We see his hand behind everything in this narrative. He disciplines Israel. He speaks through Deborah. He delivers through Barak. He kills Sisera through Jael. And he subdues Jabin on his own. He is the divine warrior and the true hero of our text this morning. He's not only the hero of our story and our song, but of all songs and all stories. Indeed, he is the hero of your story. Deborah was a prophet and a leader, but she could not be priest. Jesus is all three, prophet, priest, and king. He proclaims proclaims his kingdom. He rules his kingdom. And he intercedes on our behalf before the Father. Forgive them. Barak obeyed, but the glory was not his. Jesus obeyed perfectly and received glory that is his. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Like Jael, Jesus was esteemed not, and he was an unlikely hero. And as God, because he is God, he triumphs over all his enemies. His name endures forever. His fame continues longer than the sun. All people are blessed in him and all people call him blessed. His name is glorious forever. The whole earth will be filled with his glory. The story and the song demonstrate Israel's need for a deliverer, for a king, for a priest. And they point us again to the cross of Christ and our need for a deliverer for a king, for a priest, for someone to intercede on our behalf. Indeed, our king's cross is where we see our great rescuer, where we see that he paid our debt so that we might live. Again, we're confronted with the fact that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died to death we should have died, and that he rose from the grave, that he might claim the spoils of his victory, his sons and daughters, you and I. Do you know this king this morning? Have you dedicated yourself to him? Have you made Jesus your treasure? Do you love him? Have you trusted in him as your substitution? Do you believe his word as the authority for your life? Have you submitted yourself to it and to his plan? Trusted that he has absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. Trusted that he lives, that you can face tomorrow. That he lives so that you might follow him, so that you might have peace with God and enjoy him in eternity forever. So we come together to sing our hymn of response. As you reflect on these questions and on uh, these chapters, this story and this song, I ask that you reflect on your own story and ask yourself, is Jesus the hero of my story? Is he the hero of my life? Or am I trusting in myself? I exhort you this morning to trust in Christ.